It's been a long time, I think, since I've heard that one. In fact, I used to play it with the guitar. I don't know if you guys know. I used to play guitar. I say used to because it's been probably 15 years since I picked it up. But uh, that was one I used to love, love playing. So I appreciate that, Dustin. So, good reminder. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We are finishing up the book this morning. Just a quick recap to find our place back in the book. In chapters 10 through 13, Paul's primary purpose has been to prepare the Corinthians for his next visit. I remember on his prior visit, one he referred to as a painful one, he faced these, we'll just say it bluntly, unrepentant sinners, false apostles, and a slew of untrue accusations against himself and his companions like Timothy and Silas. If at all possible, Paul now is planning to visit them again and he's hoping to avoid another painful visit like that. I think we could probably all appreciate that. It's much like if you have a confrontation with an, a, an employee, another coworker, a neighbor, or even family members, and you come away feeling a little bruised. You don't generally look forward to doing it again, do you? Paul was in that very position, and so... He's writing to them to basically let them know, I'm coming again and I want to avoid such a visit. I'm hoping for much better things. So as we come to the end of this letter, Paul's going to make his final pleas to his readers. This will be the last letter that we know of that he sends to them before he goes to visit them. And he basically provides them with some things to prepare them. There's four things we're going to look at today. First, he begins by defending his refusal to accept payment. He touched on that last week. But he's going to defend himself for refusing to accept payment. And this is going to be critical to his visit. He's then going to share his concerns about this upcoming visit. And he's going to issue some warnings to them. Next, he's going to call on his readers to examine and test themselves before his visit. So he's going to basically say, I've got some concerns coming to see you. And we can alleviate these concerns if you'll examine yourself and test yourself before I get there. And then lastly, he's going to provide them with some encouragement, which is cool because if if we've been paying attention as we read through this, you can tell that Paul has been wounded. This is a difficult letter for Paul. We see Paul in a very different light throughout this letter. And um, he's normally strong and, and comes across that way and bold. In this letter, there's just you can see some of the emotional issues and the other things that were happening. It would be, I shouldn't say acceptable, but we would understand if Paul was maybe a little bitter. But he comes across very encouraging at the end of the letter. And that will give us a lesson. So we're going to draw some principles from this ourselves as we do it. So there's a number of things that we can actually learn from Paul. Let's look at the first little chunk, verses 14 through 18, where Paul actually defends his ministry. In chapter 11, Paul defended himself for preaching the gospel without charge. I want to just read from chapter 11, verses 7 through 12, just to give us a little context here. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 12. Or did I commit sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you, meaning I relied on other churches to take care of my needs so that I wouldn't have to have you pay me to come to talk to you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. In other words, even though while I was with you in Corinth, I had needs that needed to be met, but I didn't come to you for them. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my needs. In other words, visitors had come from Macedonia to Corinth to help take care of some of Paul's needs. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you. And I will continue to do so. 
As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, meaning I won't charge you a fee, so that I may not, or that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to charge you, I'm not going to rely on you to meet my needs, because I'm going to cut off the people that are doing that to you. In other words, I'm going to make them look bad. They're going to come in and charge you a fee. The only way they're going to minister to you is by taking advantage of you. And I'm going to set a better example. And really, that can work sometimes. Well, you know, so-and-so, Paul, when he comes, he doesn't charge us a Why do you charge us a fee? So Paul was hoping to sort of cut that off. So what does Paul do here in our chapter today, our section today? Well, he's going to repeat that a little bit. Verse 14, he says, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, And I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. So Paul basically says, I don't want to be a desire to you, or I don't want to be a burden to you. He wasn't seeking to be made wealthy off of them. He says, I'm not seeking what you have. I don't seek what's yours. In fact, he goes on, he says, but I'm seeking you. Paul was more interested in what God was doing in their lives. He was more interested in serving their needs than having his own needs met by them. He was not in it for a career. He was not in it for a job. He was not in it to make a living. He was in it for their benefit. Paul had a heart and a compassion for his readers. That was the most important thing to him. How often do we see within the Christian church religious leaders that it's pretty obvious are in it for other things. They're in it because it's a job or because they can be made wealthy or because they're going to take advantage of people. We see all kinds of charlatans, especially in the word faith movement, you know, TV ministries where you see these guys shaking down everyone. I don't know how many of you have heard Benny Hinn just recently has made some statements that have been rather shocking. He's basically, he's at least saying he's abandoned the whole word faith gospel and that it's wrong and that it was taking advantage of people. He's actually named some names of some folks that still do it. Now, whether or not this will hold true in the long term for Benny Hinn, because once before he said he was been convicted by God, but he's now saying that that gospel is wrong. He said, look, if anybody tells you to send $1,000 in because God's going to give that back to you, don't believe them. So there are charlatans out there, especially within that community. But it goes beyond that sometimes where, even within churches sometimes, Pastors find themselves in a place where it's more of a job than a ministry. I'm not saying that's that way with everyone. I'm not trying to disparage it. I'm simply saying that we have people within the church who are there for the wrong motives. It's not about the people that they're ministering to. It's about what they're getting. It's a job. It's a career. It's a path to wealth or riches or power. It's a way to sell books. It's a way to make a name for themselves. And Paul says, I have no interest in any of that. I don't want to be a burden to you. I'm seeking you, not what is yours. In fact, look what he says in the second half of verse 14. He says that he's willing to give up himself or give of himself for their benefit. He says, for children are not responsible to save for their parents, but parents for their children. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what? Those guys that are coming to you that are, that are trying to convince you to support them, 
they don't realize something. That it's not the children's job to take care of them, but the other way around. Now, Paul is not saying that children should not be responsible for their parents, because clearly the scriptures lay out that they are. When they get to the point where they cannot care for themselves, they are to be cared for by their children. In fact, as Paul is dealing with widows, he even says, don't put widows on a list of the church that will be cared for by the church if there are family members within the church that are supposed to care for them. Paul says, make the family do it first. So Paul's not saying that we shouldn't do that. But basically here he's laying on a principle that it's my job as a parent to care for the kids, to care for the sheep, if you will. And so I should be investing my resources, my time, in helping the children, not the other way around, and they've got it backwards. They're sucking resources out of you to care for them. And Paul says it's not supposed to be that way. Parents are supposed to be responsible for their children, not the other way around. And he says in verse 15 that parents are usually more than willing to invest their resources and themselves for the sake of the kids. Look at verse 15, the very beginning. He says, I will most gladly spend and be expended or expendable for your souls. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm willing to exhaust myself for your benefit. If it costs me but benefits you, I'm willing to do that. Paul's love seemed not to be reciprocated, however. If you look at the second half of verse 15, he says, If I love you more, am I loved less? In other words, Paul says, For all that I've done, you seem to love me less than these other apostles who are ripping you off. It shouldn't be that way. That's a bit of a rhetorical question. In other words, another way we could translate that is, Why, if I love you more, am I loved less? He should have been appreciated They should have applauded the fact that Paul was willing. In fact, maybe what really should have happened is Paul should have come into the city and as he began to work as a tent maker, and as he began to use his own resources, people in the church that have been ministered to should have risen up and said, No, Paul, it shouldn't be that way. We're going to help you. But somehow, they didn't see it that way. Now, something else that Paul does here as he's defending himself once again is he has to defend himself not just for not taking payment, but also for somehow secretly, behind the scenes, taking payment. In other words, they were upset because Paul wasn't allowing them to pay him for his services, but there were some of the church that were saying, yeah, that's just a facade. He just makes it look that way. He's really stealing from us on the back end. Look at what he says in verses 16 and 18. He says... Be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those who I have sent to you, have I? Remember, Paul had sent some workers ahead of him to sort of collect money for the saints in Jerusalem. On a previous trip, Paul was collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They were under severe persecution. Many of them probably lost their jobs or having trouble surviving. Many of them had scattered and left and went into what's called the diaspora, something that Peter addresses. It's the place outside of Jerusalem. But there were still saints in Jerusalem where there was the severest forms of persecution. And they were struggling. And so Paul, even mentioned in the book of Acts, had went out to start gathering money from the other churches to send to Jerusalem. And so Paul had done that on a previous trip. And the Corinthians were more than willing to help out. But... In these events, they had sort of forgotten their commitment. And so Paul reminded them in this letter, I'm going to send 
some folks back to you to take care of this, to rekindle that fire you had within you, and to collect that money for the saints. Well, apparently, some within the church are saying, oh, (laughs) that's just a ruse. Paul's not really collecting it for the saints. He's living off that. So he's got this little scheme going here where he says he's providing for his own needs. He won't let us pay him. He's making himself look good like he's giving us all this free stuff. But really, he's ripping us off on the back end. He's being deceitful. Jeez, that sounds like anything we see on television sometimes. You know, Send in your prayer to me. We'll put my hands over it. We'll pray and send in your $1,000 seed faith gift too. And where's it really going? The next jet... $1,000 suit, you know. And so Paul is defending himself on multiple fronts here. One of the things I think that stands out here, and it's the first principle I think that we can apply to ourselves, is that Paul didn't minister to others to get something out of it for himself. He didn't take advantage of other people. This was not about a career or a job or something for him. He wasn't interested in enriching himself, but quite the opposite was true. He gladly exhausted his own resources for the benefits of others. That's what ministry is really ultimately supposed to be. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be reward for ministry at times. You know, I'll be the first to say, you know what, I I spend my week studying. Um, I invest a lot of time to be able to stand up here and to teach you. Um, And part of your blessing to me is to... Um, provide me with what's called a housing allowance. It's not something I require. It's something you guys graciously do. Um, I've had plenty of times in my ministry where I haven't received any type of housing allowance of any kind. There are times where I have. Paul is not denouncing that. He's not saying it's wrong. In fact, the scriptures make it very clear that we should, in some ways, take care of those who minister to us. Um, But Paul was willing to exhaust his own resources if necessary, to spend his own time and his own energy his money to care for those. That's really should be at the heart of ministry. Now he also accepted gifts from others. You know, he allowed others to be gracious and kind to him. But that's not what drove him. How many of us, as we think about the things that we do, um, I think we have an innate thing sometimes where if we do something, we want reward for it. You know, we had a great conversation. I'm um, driving here. There's a young man. And I think it's a good example, a young man on the cross-country team that sends out emails to the team to encourage them. And he made a comment last night as he was talking to Kimberly about um, the fact that only two of the girls, or two of the team members, actually reply back to those. But he still has sent them out. And so Kimberly was one of the people that replied back to him, and I think Amelia, another girl, had replied back to him to encourage him, you know. Um, and so he, I, think he, I think Kimberly said he made a comment about um, not knowing if he should really send them out. Do people really appreciate them? Well, the response to that should be, no, send them out. Send them out. I'm sure he does, not to get the reward, but it can be a little discouraging when nobody replies. But you know what? Ministry should be driven. No, exhaust yourself. Don't expect anything in return. Paul was getting nothing except abuse in return here, and yet he's still writing a letter. He's still going to go back to these people. He's bruised, he's battered, he's beaten up. But Paul said, I am willing to exhaust myself for your benefit. So I think the first principle we can learn from this is ministry is kind of that way. It shouldn't be driven to get something back. I minister and I serve so that I get something back. I get patted on the back or get comp- Whatever it is, it should be, you know what? If I have to exhaust myself, I'll do it. I think it's a good principle for us. Isn't that the example we see in Christ? 
The guy who could have called down 10,000 angels and squashed Pilate and his people like a bug. But he didn't. He exhausted himself completely for our benefit. That's the example Paul was following. It's an example we should follow. Let's move on to the second thing. Paul shares his concern now about this upcoming visit, and he's going to actually issue them a warning. We're in verses 19 of chapter 12 and then into chapter 13. Obviously, Paul was gravely concerned that he and his readers would experience another painful visit just like the last one. Everything Paul has written up to this point has been for one purpose. It's been to build them up. Look at verse 19. He says, All this time you have been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And this is what I want to focus on. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Everything Paul has done up until this point has been to build them up. It's been for their benefit. And part of this is that Paul was preparing them for his upcoming visit and wanted to avoid this painful visit. He mentions a couple of concerns here. The first one is found in verse 20. He was afraid that there might be more conflict when he got there. Look at verse 20. He says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I had wished and may be found by you to not be what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. How'd you like a visit like that? Sound like any family gatherings? <laughs> so Paul's first concern was that there's just going to be conflict again. And partly because they had certain expectations and he had certain expectations. Now, his expectations were probably that they dealt with their sin. And we'll see that in a second. He was hoping they would be mature, godly Christians and would behave and act like it. <coughs> they were supposed to be representing Christ. They didn't represent Christ on the last visit. They hadn't been representing Christ very well since. So Paul's expectation was, when I get there, I'm hoping to find mature believers that are going to encourage me just as I encourage them. What happens if I get there and you're not? I'm going to be disappointed. Their expectations were probably that Paul would behave maybe differently. Like, he'd come in and act like a real philosopher. Come in boldly, big, fancy language and speech. You know, he might even come in and, all right, I'll charge you a little fee, make you feel good. You know, I'll let you participate by feeling like by paying me, you somehow have a stake in my ministry. Maybe they were expecting that, and Paul said, I have this feeling, I'm going to get there. These things are not going to line up. Our expectations are not going to be met with each other, and so it's going to lead to all kinds of things like it did last time. And again, the things he mentioned strife, jealousy, anger, disputes. That stuff happens in the church, folks. As much as we would love to think it doesn't, it does. I remember a former manager of mine told me one time that he was the, uh, the financial guy for their church and some woman had died and left about $20,000 to put carpeting in the church. 20 years had gone by and they had not replaced the carpeting because they would argue about the color. And he said these meetings would get nasty sometimes. So for 20 years that money sat in the bank account because they were too prideful in area. And he said, and they, they do, they, they call each other names, they argue, they fight all over carpeting. So it happens. So that was Paul's first concern. His second concern was that he was afraid that they might not have repented of their sin. There were some specific issues, some specific things that had happened within the church that needed to be addressed. One of them we know happened to be an individual that was having an affair with his stepmother. We had some sexual sins that were involved with the church. There were issues regarding lawsuits with one another. We all see that all in 1 Corinthians. 
And so there were some specific individuals that needed to be called out for their sin and needed to repent. And Paul had called on the Corinthians to do that, to hold their feet to the fire. And he wasn't sure that that was happening. And so he says in verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. The word for humiliate here simply means to make one low. In this context, humiliate might be too strong of a word to really use. Because Paul wasn't talking about being humiliated as much as he was being made low, put in a state of mourning. In other words, he would walk in and he would look at the people who were still sinning. People maybe on the last visit that he confronted that were still doing it. And Paul is saying he's going to walk in the door and his heart's going to sink because of their sin. Remember earlier Paul said, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul, when he saw sin, it broke his heart. It discouraged him. It made him mourn. Almost sounds like it might have even made him physically weak sometimes. Have you ever been in that place where you see either somebody going through an extremely difficult time or you see somebody caught maybe in sin and as you think about it and as you pray about it, you almost find yourself physically sick or weak? I have. In spite of these concerns that Paul had, these fears... He was prepared to go and confront him and discipline him if he had to. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's using a passage of the Old Testament there and he's kind of making an analogy with it. I have previously said when present, the second time, meaning on that prior visit, and though now absent, I say in advance, to those who have sinned in the past and all the rest as well, that if I come again, it's more, probably better understood, is when I come again, I will not spare anyone. In other words, Paul says, look, I'm afraid that maybe you haven't repented, but I'm also not afraid to come to you and confront you and deal with you if I have to. He says in verses 3 through 4 that in doing so, he would provide proof that Christ was speaking through him. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 18 where we refer to it as the discipline passage in the scriptures where basically Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Well, it's in the context of sin between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a prayer passage. He's basically saying, look, you got a problem with a brother or sister in the church? Go to them one-on-one and talk to them. If they refuse to hear your counsel, then take somebody with you. You take somebody with you As a witness, they look at this and they go, you know, you're right, this brother or sister is sinning. They confront the brother and sister with you and that brother and sister still refuses to repent then says, now take them to the church then. Take them to the leadership of the church and let them judge this. Let them evaluate it. And the purpose of the church then is to go, okay, let's hear the arguments. Your side, your side. Determine who's right and who's wrong. Determine if this brother or sister really is sinning and you have a case. And then say, you know what? All right, you need to deal with it. You need to repent. And then it says, if they refuse even that, the counsel from the church, then kick them out. And then it says, because where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there with them. Meaning what? Meaning you have the authority of Christ. It's as if I am standing right there judging them 
You are standing in my place. That's what Paul's referring to here. He's saying, I've got the authority of Christ. Now, it's unique for Paul because of being an apostle. I don't have that authority myself. I have to operate within the body of the church and the elders, etc. That's the way it works in the scriptures. But Paul, as an apostle of Christ, had been given specific authority, and he could confront sin. He could speak on behalf of Christ. I mean, the guy's breathing scripture, the word of God. And so Paul says, I'm willing to exercise that. Look at verse verses 3 and 4 again. He says, Since you are seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me. In other words, the false apostles are saying, He doesn't speak on behalf of Christ. And Paul says, You want my proof that I am? I can do that. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for indeed He was crucified because of weakness. Yet He lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in Him, yet we will live with Him because of the power of God directed towards you. Now I know that's a little bit, it's hard to weigh through that, but I actually prefer the way the NIV renders this. It says this, For to be sure, He, Jesus, was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by the power of God. Likewise, even though we are weak in Him, yet by God's power we will live with Him in our dealing with you. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I will come and I will exercise the authority of Christ and you will see it and you will recognize it. He may have been weak, he may have been meek and mild, but he has the power of God on his side and I've got the power of Christ on my side. So what kind of principles do we take away from this? The first one I want to see here is that Paul grieved over the sin of others. Here he is being abused, misspoken of, being accused of all kinds of wrongdoing, but he's got such a passion for their spiritual maturity in Christ that even though they had done these things, he still grieved over their sin. He wasn't offended, he wasn't agitated, he wasn't angry, he was grieved over their sin. I think about us when how would we fare if we were treated the same way? If you had been accused, or I had been accused of some of these things, or you have a brother or sister in Christ who sinned against you, and they're just not getting it, they're just not repenting of that sin, they're just not behaving appropriately, would you be grieved or would you simply be offended, agitated, and angry? I can tell you where I would tend. But Paul was grieved instead. Another principle from this is that in spite of his fears that a confrontation might cause conflict, he was willing to confront his readers, not for his sake, but theirs. Oftentimes when we confront a brother or sister in crisis, because we're offended. Not because we're going, wow, this dude's got some issues he's got to work on. It's all about him and his relationship with Christ. He may have offended me, but that's not as important as that relationship between him and Christ and what that sin does to that. I think I've shared the story before of a young man that I was ministering with when I was in seminary, a young single guy. And he got himself involved with a relationship with a woman that he shouldn't have been involved with. And um, he was a brother in Christ. I pulled him aside. We talked about it. He kind of half-heartedly admitted that, yeah, I really shouldn't be doing it, but I kind of want to do it anyway. And um, I realized that because of the relationship he was involved with, it would probably destroy any possibility of ministry that he would ever be able to have. So here he is in seminary, hoping to graduate someday, wants to go off and be a pastor. But he's a little bit blind, not realizing that this could derail all of that. 
first off, what he was doing was actually a violation of the, some of the school's policies, which means he would have been kicked out of seminary had they discovered it. Not only that, I happen to know his church and his pastor, and I know that his church and his pastor would have cut off all of his funding for seminary and probably would have disciplined him at the church. He was a friend of mine, though. It was uncomfortable. When I would talk to him, I felt awkward. Strained that relationship. He didn't want to see me. And so I remember one morning, we made plans to go to the gym together. And I said, we're going to talk this morning. He said, no, we're not. I said, well, we are, because if we don't, then you leave me with no other options. So he said, fine. We went and we worked out. And afterwards, we talked. And I said, here's the thing. What you're doing is going to mess up your life. And you can't see it but I love you as a brother in Christ. So, you need to knock it off. He basically told me to go smoke it. So I said, well, okay, here's the deal. Because I love you in Christ, you're not going to listen to me, then I'll go talk to the school. I'll go talk to Dean Plaster. And I said, you know what will happen there? He'll talk to you, discover what I discovered, he'll be kicked out of school. I said, not only that, I'll talk to your pastor. Because you know this would offend your pastor and the church. Well, he got real belligerent with me, um, called me a couple of names, stormed off. I felt horrible, felt like I had destroyed a friendship. Two or three nights later, he showed up on my door, it was pouring rain out, he literally stood out on my porch in the rain, crying, and he said, okay, fine, you got your wish, just leave me alone. I broke off the relationship, but I hate you, I don't want to ever see you again, and he stormed off. Didn't talk to him then. For He literally quit seminary at that point and left. Got a call about, it was a year or two later, inviting me to his wedding. So I went. And at his wedding, he pulled me aside. He said, you know what? If it was this woman I'm marrying here, godly, gracious young woman, he said, this would not be happening had somebody not called me out. And he said, I had other friends that didn't call me out. You're the only one. Now, I don't say that to puff myself up with pride. It was a hard time. That's what Paul's talking about here. This, this is kind of what ministry sometimes is. We have to be willing to confront, not for not because it offends us, but because of them and their relationship with Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here. He had every reason to be angry or upset. They had offended him severely, but instead Paul was still thinking about them. So he was willing to confront, which isn't always easy. Sometimes we just want to smooth things over. No. Galatians chapter 6 is a good example of that. We'll touch on that in a few minutes here. Let's look at the third thing that Paul does here. So after he defends himself, after he basically talks about his concerns and he warns them, he now calls on his readers to examine and test themselves before his next visit. He basically turns the tables and he calls on the Corinthians to look at yourselves. Stop looking at me, look at yourselves, and see if you are truly living according to the faith. They were professing to be believers. They were obviously, most oftentimes when you confront others about something, it's because you feel like you're perfectly fine, right? You're going to judge them according to your behavior. You know, I think this is right, and I don't do it, but you're doing it. Well, Paul says, okay, let's let's turn the tables here, and we're going to have you examine yourselves. Look at verse 5 of chapter 13. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? 
Paul has already declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that they were standing firm in their faith. So I don't think he's talking here about um, salvation per se. In other words, I think he's pretty convinced that they were saved. The problem was they weren't behaving like they were saved. Part of the reason I think this verse is not referring to salvation from hell necessarily is because Paul uses the article the with faith. You notice here in verse 5 that he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Now that's critical because typically in the scriptures when you have the word the in front of faith, it generally lends itself more to the doctrines, principles, and behavior of Christianity. In other words, you have faith, which is trust or belief in Jesus Christ, but then you have the faith, which is a definition of what we believe, what we, what we behave like. And so when Paul says, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, what he's basically saying is, you need to examine yourselves and make sure that you are living in accordance with the doctrines and beliefs of Christianity. And that's where we see the problem here. It wasn't that they didn't have faith or trust in Christ. They were not following or living in obedience to the faith. That's often the case. I think we have many within the church today that I would say are saved because they know Jesus Christ, but they're not living according to what this says. In fact, almost every New Testament epistle is written for that purpose. Paul doesn't generally question his readers' salvation in Christ. What he questions is their behavior. The book of Ephesians is completely written for that purpose. Paul basically says, you guys need to live by the Holy Spirit. You need to live in accordance with your calling. And so, that's what Paul is doing here. Test yourselves. Make sure that you are living like a believer. You may call yourself a Christian, but if you don't live like it, then you're going to fail the test. So it's all about obedience to Christ. Now what's interesting, this little twist here, is Paul does make them question to some degree because he says, the only way to know for sure that Christ is in you is if you pass the test. So while Paul isn't necessarily saying, you better check and see if you're saved, he's basically saying, hey, if you're going to call yourself a believer, let's test yourself and make sure you're living like it because if you're not living like it, then maybe Christ really isn't in you. Is that a fair assessment? So Paul's not making a judgment call about their faith. He's saying, you can test yourselves. Well, Paul hoped that such a self-attestment would also prove that uh, he didn't fail the test. His primary motive was their spiritual maturity. If you look at verse 6, Paul says, But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Part of Paul's hope and purpose was, if you test yourselves, and you go, oh, yeah, okay. We're really not living according to the faith. What that does is that bolsters Paul's opinion among them, meaning they'll realize, oh, Paul's right. Paul's living according to the faith. We need to as well. So that was part of his hope, was that in examining themselves, they might realize that Paul was the apostle that he claimed to be and that these false apostles were not who they claimed to be. But even though he hoped that their self-examination would exonerate him, his primary purpose was on them. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. That uh, little phrase there, I'll explain this in a second, this idea of not doing anything against the truth, but only according to the truth, 
a better way to think of this is, if you don't approve of us, we can't change that. In other words, you can't do anything against the, quote, truth. If you just don't believe us, we can't, we can't do anything to change that. But the focus of this passage here, he says, even if you don't come to the point where you approve us or think that we're okay, at least, at least, you can examine yourselves and know that you're right before Christ. So even though Paul was hoping that their examination of themselves might exonerate him, he's like, even if it doesn't, even if you still have a bad taste in your mouth about us, even if you still don't think highly of us, at least you can examine yourselves before Christ because that's the most important thing. In fact, he says that he wants them to be fully equipped to serve Christ. That's why he wants to examine themselves. Look at verse 9. He says, For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray, that you be made complete. That's the word for mature or perfect. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when I present or when I'm present, I don't have to be severe. In accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. The word for complete there simply means again fully equipped or trained for something. It means to be mature. It means fully equipped to serve Christ. Paul was content with being weak in their eyes if he had to be, just as long as they were strong and mature themselves. This is what moved Paul to write the letter. Paul says, I don't care if I still look weak among you. What I want for you to be is strong in Christ, fully equipped, mature. In fact, James, as he writes, as he opens his letter, interesting, you've heard it a million times. And Paul, when he, or James, when he says, you know, we face trials for a purpose. And he says, when you face trials, you should have joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then he says this, let endurance have its perfect work. Why? So that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That is God's goal for every believer that we might be perfect in Him, lacking absolutely nothing, mature in our relationship with Him. And Paul echoes that here. He says, I want you to examine yourselves for one reason only. If it benefits me and that it exonerates me, great. Because Paul wants to have their affection because that helps in the ministry with them, right? But he's like, even if that doesn't happen, I want you to be mature, perfect, equipped to serve Christ. That's my goal here. I would doubt highly that they are hearing though, or we're hearing those kind of words from those super apostles. I can almost guarantee it. We find another principle here that I think we can apply to our lives. It's pretty easy for us to judge others, to call them out on not living or behaving like a Christian, while we assume that our behavior is just fine. Am I true? Am I saying the truth there in that? There's a precedent in scriptures that we are to examine ourselves to ensure that we are living in obedience to Christ, especially when it comes to judging others. Remember the whole speck and log thing? Take the log out of your own eyes, you can see the speck in somebody else's, that's a call to examine yourself. It's not a call to not talk to others about their sin. It says, first, take the log out of your own eye before you deal with their speck. It doesn't say, well, because you got a log in your own eye, back off, don't say anything. No, it says, examine yourselves first. Fix your issue before you confront somebody else's. Okay? I'm just going to rattle off some verses here about this precedent in Scripture. Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reasons for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. In other words... If you examine yourself first, you're able to say, yeah, I've examined myself. I am walking in Christ. I am living in obedience. 
But it takes examination to do that. Lamentations 4, 3, chapter 40, or verse 40. Let us examine and probe our ways. Let us return to the Lord. A bunch of them in the Psalms. 20, uh, Psalm 26. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. In other words, ask God. God, i gotta, I got to look at myself. Reveal to me whether or not I've got sin. Reveal to me whether I'm living like I should. When you read a passage of Scripture, you go, Lord, am I following that? If I'm not, man, open my eyes that I can see what I'm not doing here. Psalm 119, I consider my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. It's a call to examination. David saying, I looked at my ways. I made some corrections. I turned my heart and my feet towards your testimonies, your commandments. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. In other words, examine me, test me, and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or sinful way in me. And then he says this, and lead me in the everlasting way. David is basically saying, Lord, try me, test me, show me where I'm wrong. And then, help me fix it, and lead me in the right way, the right path. So we have this precedent in scripture of self-examination, and Paul calls on these Corinthians to do that before his visit. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. I don't think that the the scriptures teach us that every morning we ought to get up and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to go through this. What he's telling us is, we have to at least on a regular basis ask ourselves the question, am I living like I should? Am I walking with the Lord like I should? Is there any sin that I need to confess? We ought to at least give as much attention to that as we do anything else in our lives, right? More so. Because if we don't do that, how do we know? You know, Earl Robmacher, I've shared this a million times, he used to be the president of Western Seminary, he used to refer to people getting saved and stuck. What he's basically saying is they get saved and then everything's good. Everything's cool. They never give any thought to whether they're growing and maturing in Jesus Christ. I've been saved for some 30 odd years, folks, and you know what? I still am learning to not misbehave. You know? I still have sin. When I asked the pastor, this pastor mentor of mine one time, so when do we stop sinning? And he just looked at me and he thought, are you an idiot? It, it never happens. You just change and you grow and you mature. You stop sinning in one area, you figure out another area that God has to open your eyes to. There has to be some ongoing regular examination of our lives. We ought to be asking the question. And Paul calls on them to do it. I think one of the reasons why many of our churches are in the condition that they're in why so oftentimes they look like the rest of the world. Why it is that we, we come across Christians all the time that all of a sudden we're shocked when we hear they say, oh, I'm a believer too. And you're kind of like, um, oh, okay. I wouldn't have gotten that from your life. Not as a form of judgment. We're just a little bit shocked by it. It's because we don't really honestly as Christians say, man, i got to examine myself. Constantly looking at whether or not I'm pleasing the Lord and walking in a way that honors and loves Him. The last thing we'll touch base on here is the last few verses of verses 11 through 14. I'm just going to read them. Paul actually provides, and this is the fourth point, some final encouragement. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Those are some encouraging words. 
Paul was unwilling to end his note on a negative thing. This is a uh, this has been a tough letter for Paul to write. I imagine uh, you know if I if he were using a word processor, probably would have hit delete a few times. He didn't have that luxury because they were writing on animal skins or on plant-based paper. But I imagine this was not something that Paul just ripped out and sent along the way. And I'm pretty certain that Paul, as he's thinking through this thought, I need to end on a positive, encouraging note. He didn't want it to end. He didn't want this visit to end the same way the last one did. He didn't want this letter to stir them with negative emotions like the last letter did. Um, So what's the final principle that we can learn from this? Paul had been falsely accused, mistreated, disrespected, and his motives challenged. Yet in spite of all of these wrongs, he follows his own advice, which he gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy, which was to be gentle. In the hopes that they would come to their sound abilities, Paul finishes up his... Or, yeah, Paul finishes up his letter, the Second Timothy, chapter two, in dealing with false teachers, and really tells Timothy to be gentle with them. That's false teachers, in the hopes that they would come to their senses. Paul says. Here, Paul is hoping they come to their senses, and so he ends on a more encouraging, positive note. We kind of see him do that throughout Second Corinthians. He's been careful here. He's been bold at times, but you see that he's being careful. He's trying to be encouraging. So let me ask this. How much better might we be able to navigate conflict if we did the same thing? If we used positive, encouraging words much like you see here. Rejoice, brethren. Be mature. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace with one another. Because the God of peace will be with you. So I think it's no shock that Paul ends on a positive note here. I think that would benefit us as well as we deal with conflict and other individuals. Always try to think, how can I end this on a positive note? How can I be encouraging? Um, It's hard sometimes if you're dealing with conflict and having to confront. Um, But there's generally ways that you can end that conversation or you can end that confrontation with words like, you know what, Um, this isn't about me. I'm just concerned about your relationship with Christ or anything else that might encourage them to grow, to change. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up with that. We are going to be beginning a new series on uh, Psalms. Um, We're going to go through a handful of them where, again, we're going to kind of focus on maybe understanding the poetry and how that leads to understanding and defining the the psalm. So uh, we'll be doing that probably through the end of the year and then maybe start something different uh, after the first of the year. So um, looking forward to that and hope you guys are as well.